episode number 69 with Jen Bovee. Welcome to Heart, Soul and Guts, where we come together to remember who we are, how powerful we are, and that together we can change the world by being ourselves. I'm Amy Biondini, and it's my pleasure to spend this time with you. Jen Bovee is a psychotherapist turned shame-busting coach. While watching people continue to struggle to accomplish their goals, Jen began to notice a very common theme for them was shame. Jen has specific training in the subconscious mind and understands specifically how shame impacts our ability to have the mindset we desire. Jen holds certifications in things like hypnosis and emotional freedom technique, EFT, also known as tapping, and has been published in places like the Huffington Post and Elephant Journal. You're not going to want to miss this one. Jen Bovee, hello, good morning, hello. Good morning, how are you? I'm really, really well, how are you? I'm doing wonderfully. Beautiful. So I feel like I've known you for a couple of years now at this point. It's right, like a- I, was trying to, I was trying to figure out that how long we'd known each other yesterday and that's all I could come up with. <laughs> it's been a little while. So I'm so glad we got to do it in the field to connect in this way. Yeah, so tell me kind of a little bit about who you are, because obviously I know you, but my audience doesn't. Right. Um, give us, yeah, give us a place most version. What's going on? Who are you? How did you get here? So uh, my original training is as a psychotherapist. Okay. I actually own a group practice where I have other clinicians that work for me. Mm-hmm. But what I noticed was there's a huge barrier in people being able to get services if they don't have insurance or if they don't live in your state. And I, I delved into that online world. Mm-hmm. And my experience is, is that a lot of people don't, they don't know what's blocking them from achieving their goals. Yeah. And I found a huge commonality in a lot of those people in that typically it's shame and how shame manifests itself is differently in everybody. Mm-hmm. But I think the common denominator there is that shame is holding them back. Mm-hmm. So what made you really kind of zoom in on shame? Well, it's interesting because like probably uh, 20 or so years ago, I I attended a training um, that Brene Brown did and, and she talked about shame. And then in the last probably five or six years, I started leading a connections group, which is using one of her curriculums and it's helping people to develop shame resilience. But what I noticed is there's some really big themes in the people who have shame presence in their life. And one of those themes is that they really get overwhelmed at the concept of self-care. Okay. I remember I was sitting in a group and I watched probably six or eight women was in that group that night. And I watched all of their eyes glass over and they all instantly checked out the minute I mentioned self-care. And I kind of brought them back to the group and I'm like, what, where did you guys all go? And they all kind of said similar things. This is just so overwhelming. I just don't even know where to start. I don't even know what that would look like. I don't have time. I'm not worthy. And so it really, it it piqued my interest and I started looking for shame in the general population and I keep finding it every time I look for it. That's so interesting. Uh, What is it about self-care that kind of sparks that, that response? I think for many people, specifically women, but but people in general, I think we're socialized um, and raised to believe that, 
you know, that, that our primary purpose in life should be to take care of everybody else and to take care of other people. Mm-hmm. And I think that what happens when we realize that that's not working for us anymore is it creates this entire, we have to change our framework, right? So like when I started doing self-care, the only thing I knew about self-care was people had been advocating self-care days. That just didn't work for my mentality or my lifestyle. So I had to find something else that worked, but I, I bumped up into resistance because I had these misconceptions in my head that you know, self-care is selfish. I should, I should worry about my family and my kids first. I should take care of my friends first. I should make sure my house is clean first. And I really think that's backwards. I think we need to start taking better care of ourselves so that we can be more present for our kids, so that we can be more present for our friends, so we can be more present on our job. Definitely. That's super common. hmm hmm Definitely. Yeah, because, I mean, I guess if we don't take care of ourselves, how do we find the energy to take care of everyone else? Uh, well, and that's exactly it. I always use the cup analogy, you know, and I, when I'm on video with clients or in person with clients, I'll pull out a cup that doesn't have anything in it, and I'll, I'll say, if I handed this to you, could you drink it? And they'd be, they're always like, well, no. And I'm like, why? And they, they begin to look at me like I've lost my ever-loving mind at this point. <laughs> and they're like, well, because it's empty, duh. And I'm like, Oh, okay. And then I start telling them how in a lot of ways they're like this empty cup. They've given so much and so consistently that they've got nothing left to give for themselves or for anybody else. And they keep trying to pour out of that empty cup. Yeah. That makes so much sense. So when you explain it like that, it's like the visual is so strong. It's like, well, obviously you can't give. You can't drink an empty cup. Like of course you can't. Right. And then I go on to tell them that if they, when they become the number one priority in their own lives and they become more focused on making sure that their cup is always full, that they actually have more to give to other people. I can imagine that's quite a difficult concept to get people's head around sometimes. It, it is. Yeah. It is. So how do, you, how do you kind of manage that transition from I must give to everyone else to kind of actually I need to fill my cup first? So I'm a big advocate for um, finding small and simple acts of self-care every day. Okay. Because then it's less overwhelming and it's not an entire day. And the other part of that is then we get into the habit and we begin be, be <laughs> building the habit from a subconscious mind perspective that taking care of ourselves is good and taking care of ourselves is safe and taking care of ourselves is necessary. And there's more buy-in to it, and it be, the, the resistance to it absolutely dissipates. So I really work with my clients to find small, simple ways to engage in self-care every day. I love that. I love that. Let's back up a little bit. How, if, how do you know that you're suffering from shame? Like, how do you know if that's something you need to kind of look more deeply into? So shame typically manifests itself. The typical things that we label that we're mislabeling that are really shame are low self-esteem, poor relationship choices, um, that inability to connect with people on a deep level, um, self-sabotage. Many times anxiety has a huge root in shame. So when we look at what shame is, it's that 
feeling of not being blank enough. We can fill in that blank with 532 different words, Mm -hmm. but it all comes back to that same thing. We're just not enough. And because we're not enough, we feel unworthy of connection. Okay. That makes sense. It also sounds like everyone. Yeah, the, mm-hmm. Now, I have met a couple of people in my journey that I really don't think necessarily um, struggle from shame. But I think that if we looked deeper there, it would still be manifesting itself somewhere for them. Yeah, I can see that. Which, yeah, I'm, not, I'm saying it's everyone. It's like, that sounds like I'm, every woman I know, including myself. Right. Right. That's, when you think of it like that, that's crazy. Because this is like, rife in the population. Agreed. And I think it's growing more every day. Honestly, I think the, the social media stuff doesn't necessarily help that. Um, but I think that what we're really being called to do is we're really being called to talk about how to develop shame resilience. And I know, you know, it's a conversation we have, I have with my kids because I want them to be shame resilient. Okay. And when we, when we look at what shame resilience is, it's the ability to, basically it's the ability to interact with shame without getting sucked in. I'm not sure I know what that means. So, there's this example in one of Brene Brown's books where this woman is is sitting outside with her kids and her husband and she's going through the mail. And, and it was such a, like, it was a life bulb moment for me. And I remember I read it, this passage in the book to my husband and he just looked at me like I had lost my mind because mm-hmm. she's going through the mail and all of a sudden she storms in the house and she locks herself in her bedroom. And like before she went in the house, she snapped at her husband and she's like, you never clean the garage. The garage is a mess. Why don't you ever just clean the garage? And she appeared completely irrational, right? So she goes in the house and she locks the bedroom door and he's pounding on the door and he's like, will you stop being crazy? What is wrong with you? And finally, a few days later, she was able to process what happened. And what happened for her was when she was going through the mail, they got an invitation for a pool party for her daughter. Okay. And the invitation said that it was mandatory that parents had to swim with the kids. Okay. Which meant she had to show up in a bathing suit. Yeah. And I remember I was, I I felt like that was so profound and I read it to my husband. He's like, I still don't get it. And I'm just sitting there like, what what kind of monster are you? How do you not get this? That activated every amount of shame about her body that she has ever experienced. Yeah. And he was like, I guess I just don't get shame. And I'm like, maybe you don't. So the goal of developing shame resilience is the ability to notice those kinds of things when they come up, but not be massively impacted by it. Not be paralyzed by the fear of it. That sounds easier said than done. Because I can imagine so when, she letter, when she saw that invitation, like everything just like, oh my gosh. Like your entire yes. life just comes flooding back. I can see yes. that so easily. I probably had the same reaction. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I get that. So yeah, I, I get that. Maybe it's a woman thing. Maybe men just have different triggers. Well, and that's interesting because what the research shows is that men do suffer from shame, but m- 
typically in the male brain, shame shows up differently. Shame is very boxed. So with women, it's kind of a wet. Right. So when we looked back at that woman who got that thing in the mail, it turned out that a few months earlier, she had sat in the beauty salon and gone through this magazine. And the magazine apparently had some kind of um, model on it. And she was talking about how she had children and her children didn't want a fat mom because no kid wants a fat mom. And so that really stuck with her and that, and it spiraled from there. It's very web-like one thing is connected to another thing is connected to another thing. Whereas with men, their shame is very structured and very, it doesn't touch other areas. It's very boxed in. Okay. So shame itself is a universal experience, but how we process that shame and how it impacts us is definitely different by gender. That makes sense. Yeah, because I can see how an example with um, with that lady, I can see how it can just go into like all areas of your life. Right. Like, it could be reinforced in like social media or like even like, the TV, just everywhere. You just kind of feed that. Yes. So how do we how do we cope on something like social media? You know, you look at Instagram and you see all the pictures and you have these amazing lives. I can imagine that's triggering for a lot of women. I think it really is. I think that for many women, it they we have to learn to become mindful of what we're putting into our viewing. Does that make sense? I've recently gone through this thing where I've started, this is going to sound awful, but I've started unfollowing people who are constantly talking about diet and fitness because that's just not... Um, helping me to be the kind of person that I want to be. And I noticed that when I start my day and I'm scrolling Instagram and that is what I'm being fed, I'm shorter with my attention span. I'm snippier. It doesn't, it doesn't help me to feel good about me. So I've really begun changing who I allow to influence me to people that help me to be a better person and to be healthier from a mental standpoint, because to be constantly bombarded with those images of 98.2 pound women just is triggering for me. Yeah, and no, I can imagine that. And it doesn't sound silly at all. It sounds super smart. <laughs> well, good. <laughs> it really does. So, so one of the things I talk to my clients about as far as social media goes is about putting some really specific limits on it. Because when we're constantly available, whether that's through instant message, whether that's through text or cell phone or whatever, it, it becomes exhausting mm -hmm. and we begin resenting the people who are interacting with us because it feels like they're always taking from us. And so I really talk to my clients about setting limits with their interaction with social media, not mindlessly scrolling and taking breaks on a regular because I think that when we disconnect from social media on a regular basis, it helps us to make sure that we're really filling ourselves first. Okay. So is a part of the kind of self-care really about around setting boundaries about what we let into our world? Yes. I think that's a, a great way to reframe that. I think it's about setting boundaries about what we let into our world and setting boundaries within ourselves about what we'll engage in. I no longer feel the need to educate everybody who who posts a 
very incorrect statement on social media. And I think for a lot of us, that's, that's how we got sucked in, right? Yeah. Like you see somebody and they say something that's so blatantly incorrect and, and you want to help them because you're assuming that they are coming from the same place that you are, where you just really want to be a good person. And so you want to provide them with that education. Things go south quickly and you end up just fuming. And so the more we can disconnect from those kinds of experiences and opportunities, the more we're going to find contentment and peace within. Definitely. And I feel like this leads really well into kind of marketing because I'm just thinking, okay, yes, in terms of who you will follow on social media, you can kind of put boundaries around that, but we are bombarded with marketing images and messages. And it feels like sometimes they're like designed to hit our triggers. Agreed. And and I think they are. I think many marketers um, are still operating under that pain point mentality where they believe that if they can just, you know, touch on our pain point, then we'll buy their product or their service. And I think that's not necessarily the most ethical way to go about things, but I know it's not the most healthy. Mm. Okay, so I have two questions around that. One is kind of how can we support ourselves so we don't allow ourselves to get triggered by these messages? And the second question is how can we as entrepreneurs ensure that we're not just jabbing at people's pain points? I think those are both great questions. The first one, well, let me address the second one first. The, the okay. second one is how can we make sure we're not doing that? I think that we really have to examine the content we're putting out in the world. I, um, when I first started blogging, I got lots of criticisms because my blogs were quote unquote too long. And I've talked to several people about them and I just can't. Now, recently I've put out some less lengthy blogs, but it takes a lot for me to get a blog that's less wordy because I'm truly trying to give people solutions at every blog I do. Okay. So I think we have to ask ourselves, are we a part of the problem or are we a part of the solution? Mm, good question. And if, if we're a part of the solution, then I think that that guides what we do. But if we're a part of the problem, we're probably just going to continue being part of the problem. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. So I think that part of what we have to look at is what are we really offering? Are we offering a solution or are we offering, you know, just hope? Because that's, I think that's the problem with a lot of that, that stuff out there where people are just constantly focusing on people's pain points. I don't necessarily see them following through with offering a solution even. So it's more like they're shoving people's pain points to kind of pull people in, but they're not actually delivering. Yes, agreed. That doesn't sound ethical at all. And I see it happening. No. I see it happen a lot. And I think it's kind of in the entrepreneurial world, that's what we're kind of taught to do that, like, you must hit people's pain points, otherwise they won't buy. They won't engage. They won't, they won't even know that there's a problem. Absolutely agreed. So I think perhaps it's also part of us turning that around to actually, you know, we are, we are smart people. We know if something is off in our lives. Mm -hmm. Maybe if we just presented the solution, is that enough? Right. Well, and I think it has to come from a place of I'm enough. So I know the services and, and, and things I offer, the products I offer in life are enough. So I don't necessarily feel like I have to, 
you know, jab people in the pain point just to suck them in. Yeah. And I don't think it's people's intention always. I mean, sometimes it is. No, but I think of course. sometimes it's not. And I can comp- I'm just so seeing it. So if you yourself are coming coming from a place where you don't feel worthy, and then you're putting out something around marketing, it's going to feed through. Of course it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then you know you're talking to you know someone else who's probably feeling unworthy or has low self esteem or any of those things you spoke about. And it's like it's this whole cycle, isn't it? It really is. Which is why I'm a big advocate that 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 we have to work on our own shame issues so that we can show up more authentically for everybody else. I think that sounds amazing. How do we do that? <laughs> so I think first, so the difference between like being triggered from a shame perspective versus being triggered from a... Um, Trauma perspective is typically in trauma work. We tell people to avoid those triggers, right? We tell them, these are not healthy for you. Make sure you don't interact with these kinds of triggers. The problem is that that's not necessarily possible from a shame trigger perspective. So what we have to do is we have to learn how to interact or recognize when those shame triggers occur and we have to attempt to externalize that as much as possible. So what typically when I'm working with clients to develop shame resilience, I ask them where shame typically shows up in their physical body, which is typically, it's interesting because typically people really struggle to identify that. Mm -hmm. And so when they're struggling to identify that, we'll talk about things like, you know, if, if shame had a shape, what shape would it be? If shame had a color, what color would it be? If it had a smell, what smell would it be? Because all of those questions are designed to help you externalize that shameful experience. And is the idea that once you can externalize it, you can kind of look at it from a more compassionate kind of observer point of view? That's exactly it. And, and the biggest antidote for shame is actually compassion. Mm. which is interesting right you wouldn't necessarily think that that shame would be that the antidote for it would be compassion but truly when you learn how to be compassionate towards yourself and compassionate towards those things that trigger that shame response inside of you that's where that's where things begin to shift for you I can see that and I was just going to say it makes so much sense and I can imagine that it's incredibly hard to have that self-compassion. It is, especially when, when we live in a world, for a long time in my life, I was like my own worst enemy and it was kind of an intentional thing on myself until I'd met my husband and I remember one of our first interactions was he looked at me and he just said, why are you so hard on yourself? It just doesn't even make sense. And in my mind, I knew exactly why I was so hard on myself. I was so hard on myself because if I was the hardest person on myself, then no one else could ever blindside me with being hard on me. So it's like you were protecting yourself. That's exactly what it is. And I think there's a lot of people in our world that do that. You know, if they beat themselves up more than anybody else can beat them up, then nobody else gets the power because they didn't. They weren't blindsided. They weren't triggered. They weren't whatever by that. So is there also like, um, I don't know what the word is exactly, but it sounds like there's a flavor of fear kind of laced into that. Definitely. 
and I think the fear shows up differently for everybody, but I think that fear is really prominent when you're, when you're immersed in shame. Why? Because I think the fear is that you're, perception of not being good enough thin enough pretty enough wealthy enough whatever enough is actually a reality and you're terrified that somebody's going to come along and confirm that for you Mm. yeah makes a lot of sense it's like that whole um idea that people make fun of themselves before anyone else can right well and i think there's there's this 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 concept that fear in itself is bad and it's, it's negative. And, and I don't necessarily believe that. I think fear can motivate us to take great risks and, and it can cause us to grow and change and evolve. But I, but I do think for some people, fear is absolutely paralyzing. Oh, yeah, definitely. I would agree with that. And I think a lot of the times we can just, we, we feel fear and then we push it down. Agreed. And we just don't want to look at it. It's just like put it in a box and I think it just gets worse. It just kind of grows because it's not being brought out into the light to look at. I, I absolutely agree. And I think that anything that we just shove down like that, it, it just grows. My experience with those kinds of feelings is I'm a big proponent for feeling whatever feeling comes up for me. Because if I don't and I resist it or I deny it or try to smash it down or whatever I'm trying to do for it, mm-hmm. it's going to grow and it's going to become bigger and stronger and more resilient until I actually feel and express the feelings. I think a lot of people are afraid to feel their feelings. Agreed. It's like Well, and I think I think we live in a world where you know, especially I think men get the short end of the straw, but I think most of us weren't taught to feel those feelings or acknowledge those feelings. I know that for me growing up, I was, every time I cried, whether it was watching TV or I was having an issue, but every time I cried, I was sent to my room. Well, that just sends you the message that it's not okay to feel those feelings because if you can't be out amongst the public when you're crying, then obviously there's something wrong with those feelings. Yeah, it's like telling you you need to hide away. Agreed. That's kind of like, though, what we've done with men, too, though, right? We've told men for so long that it's not okay to feel those feelings. Don't be, don't be a sissy. Don't be a wuss, blah, blah, blah. And now we have a society of men that don't have access to those positive or negative emotions. And we don't understand why. Yeah, no, completely. We've definitely done that. And it's interesting because by the same token, you know, as a society and as a culture, we also, I guess, shame women for being over-emotional, for being too sensitive. Yes. You know, and it's like you can't feel these feelings, particularly when I was in corporate, it was just like, you know, you can't show emotions at work. And if you if you did, it was just you being a woman and you're going to cry in the bathroom. Like you didn't have what it takes. And it's like, I can see now, I'm thinking about it, how we are bombarded all over the place by the message that feeling your emotions is not okay. Yes. All over the place. You know, it's funny, when my husband, it's not. And when my husband and I first got together, 
I feel like somebody should have warned him about <laughs> me as a person before we ever entered that road, but he didn't heed those warnings. And and I I can remember probably around six to eight times he would say things to me like, can't you just turn down these feelings? Can't you just shut them off for a few minutes? And every time I would look at him and I would say, can I? Yes. But one thing for sure, you won't like the person I become if I do that. Yeah. And now he's, he, he values my feelings so much that he'll be like, Hey, what do you feel about this? What, 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 what kind of feelings does this bring up? And I'm like, so now he comes to rely and depend on those feelings. But in the beginning, he had never been around anybody who had such great access to their feelings. Well, yeah, because we're taught to suppress them, but I love that. I love that kind of that journey you went through together where he's like, mm-hmm. wait, what, what is going on here to actually really seeing the value of them and kind of mm-hmm. walking them into the conversation. That's, that's so good. I think really reassuring people that, you know, it can change and it can evolve. And just because you don't have access or you're not familiar with them now, that can change over time. Well, and it really can. And there was a point in my life and I don't remember what movie it was, but I remember I went and saw this movie with some friends, some girlfriends and we're sitting in the movie and they're all sobbing and I am just sitting there dried as a boat and I remember my friend talking to me later and she's like you know you don't cry like a normal person and I'm like what she's like you don't I I have known you for probably 10 years and I've never seen you cry and and that was part of the realization for me that I had just locked my feelings down so tight because I didn't think they were safe so part of that process for me was acknowledging my feelings and allowing them to come back out and now I really value them I can see that, but I'm, I'm, I'm curious about the way you kind of said that in terms of you didn't feel that your emotions were safe. What, is, what they, does that mean? So when we're raised in a family with dysfunction, where there are four rules for those, those families. And those rules are don't talk, don't think, don't feel, and don't trust. And I had really honed in on several of those rules, but the one that was affecting me at that moment was don't feel. It wasn't safe to feel if I felt feelings, things went bad, things went sideways, nothing good was going to happen. So I had to stop feeling stuff. So I just shut that down until I could get to a place emotionally and physically where I could feel safe. And then some of those feelings started to come back. Okay, that makes sense. So is it a lot of these kind of triggers are kind of almost implanted or conditioned into us as kids? Yes. And then as we kind of, we mature, it's then up to us to then start looking at untangling them. Absolutely. Our subconscious mind is actually created prior to puberty. So if we look back over our life when we were, you know, birth to puberty, those experiences are what actually creates and forms our subconscious mind. So you're, t- you're telling me that I've got a seven-year-old. <laughs> my subconscious mind that's not going to end well right exactly oh yeah that's definitely not going to go well (laughs) I need to get her grown up quickly right well yeah and I I absolutely get it you know I I think that that for many of us when we had that realization we're like oh I'm in trouble now (laughs) nothing good's gonna come from this So I'm a big proponent of educating my clients about, 
you know, what, how our subconscious mind is formed and how to heal that. Because I think that that's the piece that's typically missing from a lot of people's shame resiliency journey. I believe that for a lot of them, it's, they don't know that unless you address shame on that subconscious level, you're probably not going to get the results you want. Especially when we consider that 96 to 98% of, of habits, perceptions, and behaviors are stored in your subconscious mind. Okay, that's a lot. That's a lot. Especially when you consider that most of us, including the average coach and therapist, don't know how to access or change that subconscious mind program. But we can. Yes. Okay, that's, that's good. That's good to know. Yeah, we can, we can, the, the quick and, for lack of better descriptors, quick and dirty, easy ways that I typically tell my clients to begin changing their subconscious mind programming is first of all, with reinforcing what you want versus what you don't want. I think a lot of us have gotten stuff talking about, it's almost becomes addictive talking about the negative in our lives. You know, I don't want this. I, the, the classic example for most women is I'm fat, I'm broke, I'm blah, blah. Okay, none of that is helpful. And all you're doing when you repeat that kind of talk is just programming for, that you're just programming your subconscious mind to create more experiences of feeling fat and broke. So it's like like attracts like. That's exactly what it's like, which I kind of feel like that's where a lot of that came from is that when you, from a subconscious mind perspective, you end up reinforcing the wrong things. And so the very first thing I do with my clients is I talk to them about the power of their thoughts. And we talk about how to begin reinforcing what they want versus what they don't want, whether or not it's true. A lot of my clients initially get hung up in that I'm not thin, but I'm not wealthy. And I tell them... I understand that right here, right now, you don't feel like those things are true. And they may not be true factually. But if you want these things to be true in the future, we have to begin programming your subconscious mind with that suggestion so that it makes that happen. So are we talking affirmations? Affirmations. I really have gotten into, my friend Robin Badler talks a lot about, she's not a fan of affirmations. And what I realized she's done is, She's used that beginning phrase from um, EFT, the emotional freedom technique. And, and an example with people who struggle with weight issues is even though I'm not currently the size I want to be, I'm willing to allow that experience to change. That sounds so much more healthy. Just like, Isn't it though? It's so much more. Okay. I could be open to that. Right. Yeah. And so I, I've really begun talking to my clients about that. So we use a lot of affirmations. We also use, and I don't really care what word you use to describe this. You can use visualization. You can use imagination. You can use pretend. The reason why that's such an important skill set from a subconscious mind perspective is that when we're, the language of your subconscious mind is the imagination. Yeah. So whether you're closing your eyes and pretending like your goal has happened, it doesn't really matter from that perspective. Your subconscious mind is going to accept that as a program. So I talk to my clients a lot about, you know, that five, that five minutes after you wake, wake up, before you get out of bed, close your eyes and imagine your goals coming true that day. Those last 10 minutes before you go to sleep, close your eyes and imagine, you know, your goals happening. Because the more we can program our subconscious mind and get our subconscious mind on board, the quicker and easier these goals are going to come to fruition. 
Okay, I get that. And it sounds kind of similar in a way to a lot of kind of the law of attraction teachings. So my question is, in a lot of those teachings, they really, they go to the whole, you have to feel the emotion. Mm-hmm. But if you don't have access to your emotions, it's just, is it more a question of faking it? Okay, so yes, yes and no. So there's two issues with the whole visualizing, pretending, whatever. And and the big barrier for a lot of people in that aspect is that people with a significant history of trauma typically struggle to visualize things that they haven't experienced. I can understand that if you've got no frame of reference. Right. But they can, for those people, they typically have better access to things like feelings and emotions. So for those people, I typically recommend that they just spend a few moments focusing on what it would feel like. You know, what would it feel like to be at your financial goal? What would it feel like to be in that happy relationship? What would it feel like to have that job that you want? What would it feel like to have that body that you love and approve of? And that's a pretty much game changer for them. So for those people that can't access those feelings. My husband's a a huge person in this area. When we first got together, he just didn't have access to to positive emotions at all. But he was, he can manifest stuff like nobody's business. (laughs) And I literally his, when we first got together and I would be like stressing about how are we going to pay this bill? He would legitimately look at me and say things like, well, I don't know how it's just going to happen. Everything works out. Everything always works out. And that like literally broke my brain because I'm just like, that's not an answer. That's not even a solution. What are you talking about? That's not a thing. And he would always just, he would always just tell me, he's like, it's always just going to work out. And honestly, I've known him for eight years now and he's right. Every time it has always just worked out. So he can, he can, the other day we were at home and, and I said, oh my goodness, you don't even have any clients scheduled this afternoon. What are you doing today? And he's like, oh, I'm going to have two consults scheduled before the end of the day. Less, and I'm like, mm-hmm, sure you are. <laughs> and less than 10 minutes later, an email popped up. Yep. He had a new consult set up. And before the end of that day, he had two new consults set up. So he can't necessarily feel the feelings of it, but he can definitely reinforce and visualize that like nobody's business. So I don't think that that people who can't feel those feelings are at a disadvantage at all because I've experienced somebody who doesn't necessarily feel those feelings, but can totally visualize that and create that for himself. Okay, so I'm intrigued now how this works with belief. Because you said you didn't, you don't necessarily have to believe what you see, right? And like my mind can't quite get around that. <laughs> so <laughs> I get it. So for a lot of people, I think that the big issue there is the basic way I could describe it is fake it until you make it. Act as if. Okay. So you don't necessarily have to believe with a million percent certainty that this is going to happen or that this can even happen. But I think that if you're willing to allow it to happen, then your world's ahead of other people. That's true. I can see that. Yeah, because I think where people struggle with fake it till you make it is it can feel like you're lying to yourself. Right. And, And I'm not a fan of that, that lying to yourself thing. I think that that's detrimental and creates harm. 
but I am a fan of acting as if, because I think that it's kind of like that old adage, you know, you act your way into a new way of thinking. Yeah. Yeah. You, really you know, if that. you can act as if something is true and just be open to allow it to become true before too long, it'll be true. I can see that. Yeah, I can see, I can see my life when, when, that, when I've done that. Because if you're stuck in a particular place and that's all you can think about. Yes. It, it never, it really never ends. <laughs> no, which is exactly my issue with debt, right? Like the more debt you're in, the more debt you find, the more debt you, you attract, the more debt you experience. And it just becomes this overwhelming theme in your life of debt. And, and, you know, the problem with debt is that you can, with a lot of issues, you can escape it. You know, you can go to a movie, you can go sleep, you can go on vacation. But debt is always there for you 24-7. <laughs> and it becomes this mindless, endless rabbit hole spiral of just constantly reinforcing more debt and attracting more debt and creating more debt and, and debt. Yeah, been there. So as have I, and I remember when I filed bankruptcy and it was the most dehumanizing experience i had had. And the reality was 99% of that, that was from medical expenses, but that didn't appease my mind any, you know, I didn't feel less bad because it was medical expenses. I felt just as guilty as the person next to me who was there because they were in credit card debt. Yeah. So it didn't necessarily appease my guilt any. And I really had to start looking at and challenging my thoughts surrounding money, my thoughts surrounding bills, my, my thoughts surrounding income, and all of that had to change. I remember actually the first time I started reinforcing that people love to pay me and um, money is always coming to me. And it was such a bizarre experience because I grew up really poor and it felt absolutely like I was lying to myself. But at that time, my husband, who was not my husband, looked at me and he's like, what do you really have to lose at this point? You can't get any more poor than you are, right? And I'm like, well, <laughs> I mean, no. And so I didn't feel it at all. I just kept saying it and seeing it. And, and I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the first time I went to the post office and found a random as heck $600 check, I was a believer. The second time, I was sold for life. <laughs> and I'll never forget one of those times I went home and I like I must have had a bunch of checks from jobs and whatnot. And I was like just sitting at the counter signing a bunch of checks. And my daughter came up to me. She's like, Jen, why do you have so many checks? She's like, what did you do? And I'm like, what can I tell you? People just love to pay me. <laughs> I love that. And she was like, what? And I'm like, it's a thing. It's okay. And she's like, I don't know what to say to this. I'm going to have to go now. All right. Because <laughs> I was just working on creating that experience for myself. And I think that that's when we go back to those affirmations. You know, even though I didn't, I didn't see money coming in, I was willing to allow it to come in and I was inviting it in. Yeah. Do you think you have to get to a point of desperation before you can be kind of willing to allow it to come in. I think that we can create that point of desperation for ourselves. So I want to say no, because I know some people that have absolutely gotten there and have not experienced desperation, but my experience for me personally, absolutely. 
That's kind of depressing, but it also makes sense because it's, it's almost like you've got no other options but to give it a try. Which is exact. that's kind of my personality, you know, like I'll give it my last ditch effort to try something like this. And then I'll just be like, oh, well, I mean, this works. That's amazing. I love it. But until I, I'm at that desperation state for me, I'm probably not going to be willing. Do you think it's because it, it doesn't make sense rationally? Yes. Yes. I, my personality is such that if things don't make sense rationally, I'm going to struggle to adapt them or enact them. I think that's super common. I, I agree. Many of my clients are of a similar mindset. You know, that, that's why the old adage like around addiction and recovery is you have to hit quote unquote bottom, right? Mm. Well, what most people don't tell you is you get to decide where that bottom is. Oh, I love that. That's one of those things that I tell all of my clients. And it doesn't matter what the issue is. It can be relationships. It can be finances. It can be food. It can be sex. It can be friendships. You are always in control and you get to decide where that bottom is. I love that. That's actually so empowering because it hasn't got to get to like the, the worst thing ever. You can make a choice. Right. That this is my bottom right now. Exactly. That's exactly what you get to do. And we all have the power of that choice. That is so much more empowering to think of it that way. It really is. And, and, it, and it allows you to take personal accountability and responsibility for having the ability to make those decisions. Definitely. So if we decide, that, okay, this is it, this is my bottom, is it then about doing those visualizations, the imagining, the faking it until you make it, until your reality kind of catches up? Is that how we get out of it? I think so. And I think it's about making new decisions and, and changing your behaviors. So, you know, like when I gave up sugar and carbs, I could no longer go to the grocery store and walk through a bunch of aisles, right? Like I had to make some different decisions. So I had to make the decisions that, and I had to change the behaviors because the old behavior was just to walk up and down every aisle and get some stuff. Mm-hmm. There's really no thought there either for what it was worth. It was just grab some stuff that I think will make people happy and let's go. Um, or grab some stuff that can be put together into some meals and let's call it a day. And mm-hmm. so now it requires me to be more mindful when I'm grocery shopping. And it requires me, it required me to change my actual physical behaviors because I couldn't walk up and down every aisle and just grab stuff anymore. And the same thing is true from a financial standpoint. You know, when I wanted to change my experience with money, I could no longer just go and swipe my card everywhere and be resentful and angry about that. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, I get that. But I like it as well because it, it's, it sounds like a part of the way out is in actually just being more conscious with your actions. And I think that's actually really powerful because I, I wonder how much of life we go through, you know, automatically. I know Absolutely. Really know what we're doing. Absolutely. Probably more than we'd like to think. I'm just trying to think. So like, much more. How much do I actually? How much? I'm just trying to think of how much of my week I was actually consciously making a decision about everything that I do. Probably not that much because a lot of it is just routine. You just do it. You absolutely do just do it, and and I think that the 
the reality is, so from a brainwave perspective, um, you rarely, adults are rarely in beta, which is where you're having deep cognitive thought. Most of what we're doing is just out of habit and behavior. Yeah, which is that subconscious again. Yep. So we're not actually being conscious. We're not actually being mindful of what we're doing. We're just doing it because that's what we've always done. It's kind of like that old story. I don't know if you're familiar with it or not, but it always cracks me up. Um, the one where, you know, the woman takes out a ham and she cuts off both ends and then she wraps it up and puts it mm -hmm. in the oven. Yeah, yeah. And her child is like, mom, why do you cut off both ends? And she's like, I don't know. That's just what we've always done. That's what grandma did. Ask grandma. So the child goes to grandma and asks grandma, why do you cut off both ends of the ham? And grandma says the same thing mom did. Child goes to great grandma and great grandma actually has an excuse. And she's like, our ovens weren't as wide as they are now. <laughs> so we had to cut off the ends because that's how it would fit in the oven. Mm -hmm. But we're still doing it today because that's just our habit and behavior now. I love that story. I have heard it before and I love it every time. It gets me every time. Thinking, yeah, we so do that. Right. Yep. And, and it just causes you to look around your life and see how many things you're just doing because it's just habit. Yeah. And how many things you're doing because it brings you joy or because it makes you feel safe or it makes you feel content. So I have a question then. And this could be completely off, and you can tell me. Is shame a habit then? It very much is. That actually is kind of a good thing because it means we can change it. Absolutely. Absolutely, we can change it. That is really good to know. <laughs> but I think everything in our life is a habit at this point. Okay. Uh, I think, you know, when we go back to that, that, that statistic to that 96 to 98% of our habits, perceptions, and behaviors mm -hmm. are stored in our subconscious mind. That means most of us are just running on our default programming. Which we've established is our pre-puberty brain. Yep. That's really not going to end well for anyone. It's really not. All the world comes think of it. It does explain Agreed. a lot. Is, it does explain a lot, doesn't it? Like, as you look around the world today, it explains so much. It really does. It really does. Okay, I would love to keep talking to you about this because I feel like we could go on for hours. But we've We really, could. We could, definitely. But we're nearly coming up to an hour as it is now. So are there any final thoughts you want to quite close with? So many. Um, I imagine. I can't really think of anything specifically currently other than I just really want everybody to know that they have the power to change whatever current circumstances are displeasing to them. And that is such a powerful message. You're never just stuck with what life has dealt you. I love it. Jen, where can people find more about your, your method, your process, you, all things Jen? Where can we find you? <laughs> they can go to www.jen, with two N's, bovee, B-O-V-E-E, dot -E com. Awesome. We'll also have those links in the show notes. And I'm sure people will want to contact you and just hear more about this because it's such an important message and so empowering. So thank you so much for spending some time with us today and sharing your wisdom with us. Thank you so much for having me. 
so great to hang out with you today. If you love the show, please leave a review on iTunes as it really helps get this message into more ears. This is Amy Biondini. Live your truth. Be yourself. <laughs>